Thank you. you. May be seated. And at this time, I'll dismiss the children to Children's Church. I see Miss Amy over here to my left and your right. Uh, as they go, I will just say, and I heard Jerry mention it briefly during his prayer, but on the campus of Asbury University, uh, something crazy happened this week. Uh, they are one of the universities that still require their students to attend chapel services on a regular basis. Well, the Holy Spirit apparently showed up at this week's service, and the service that began on Wednesday, as of last night, was still going on. Now, a few months ago, I shared with you what the elements of revival should include. So before I get into my message, I just want to touch on some of this. I shared with you that it was always preceded by prayer, and that is something that is clearly taking place. It would also include the preaching of the word, which again is something that has taken place there. And finally, it would always include these elements within revival. Repentance, confession, restitution, and reconciliation. At times, such revivals may also include miraculous works, but they will not always include those things. All of those other things, though, that I just mentioned will always be present in revival. Now, when we hear of revival breaking out in different places, I caution you not to look with skepticism upon the move of God which so often we naturally do. Instead, I encourage you to pray that God would allow the fires of revival to spread throughout the land, not to stop in one town, but rather that every church across America would experience revival. Pray that such revivals, that through them, God would raise up a new generation of believers and holiness preachers who have personally encountered Jesus Christ and pray that this would only be the beginning of an incredible move of God. We have said often that the only hope this nation has is for revival to take place, which means when it happens, we ought to be celebrating it. We're going to take a moment. I know we just prayed, but I want to pray that God would allow that revival fire to take place here as well. Father, as we come before you today, we do celebrate the move of God, your hand at work among your people. We celebrate the fact that there are people who right now are repenting of sins, individuals who are being introduced to you for the very first time. And there are others who they have known you for a long time, but for whatever reason, they have allowed their relationship to fade. They've allowed sin to take root in their lives and today, they are recognizing the need for repentance. Today, we celebrate the work of God among your people. But we pray that it would not end there in Asbury, but rather that all throughout this land, we would see revival take place. I pray even for this church. I pray that the altars would be full of individuals recognizing their need for more of you, that we would be open to confession and admitting before our God that we are an imperfect people. Lord, I pray that you would give us a heart not just for confession, but for repentance, a willingness to turn from our sin and choosing to walk in a way that honors you. Lord, we pray that true revival would take place and let it take place here with us. Father, I pray that in the days ahead that our nation would be transformed 
but let it be because the people of God became the people of God, that we surrendered our lives to you and allowed your spirit to work in us. Last week, we talked about David and we talked about his need for repentance. And he prayed, restore unto me the joy of your salvation. Today, Lord, we pray the same thing for us. We pray that revival would take place in our hearts. Cast not your Holy Spirit from us. Fill us today with your spirit and work in us to change who we are. Lord, we give you praise for what you're going to do in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you believe that revival fires can still fall upon God's people? Or do we look at it just with skepticism? Well, that can't be real. I'm sure it's just someone else orchestrating it, manufacturing this event. I would suggest to you that it is the same God who sent revival on the day of Pentecost. And it is the same God who can send revival today. And that's what we pray is going to take place. Now, before this gets away from me, I want to say this morning, happy Valentine's Day this week. Obviously, I'm not going to see most of you on Tuesday. I was talking with someone this week who is single and admitted that he often struggles with celebrating Valentine's Day. He shared that one day it hit him, though, that he had a great reason to celebrate Valentine's Day he had discovered that he is now considered to be the bride of Christ. And so whether you are single or you are married, widowed or whatever your status may be, I say to you, happy Valentine's Day this week. You know, marriage is a big deal throughout the scriptures. In fact, even before the fall of man, we see marriage as instituted by God with Eve being given away by her heavenly father and then being instructed to be fruitful and multiply. Adam and Eve were to be married under the blessing of God the Father. So we begin with a marriage all the way back at the beginning of creation. How will the Bible end? Actually, it will end with a great wedding banquet as Christ returns for his bride, another marriage celebration. And in between these two great events, we see the marriage covenant over and over again. And we'll look at that in just a few moments. Today, I want to continue in our series entitled The Making of a King by looking at perhaps the second greatest king that Israel would ever have. Actually, it's going to take two weeks to be able to cover this one. I'm talking about the son of David by the name of Solomon. His story is recorded in multiple books in the Old Testament, but I want to focus this week on what we find in what's called the Song of Solomon or the Song of Songs, depending on how your Bible recorded the title. I will tell you that I learned this as the Song of Solomon. And so that's what I will call it today. So if yours says the Song of Songs, it's okay, yours is wrong. Um, just kidding. <laughs> Before we get into our passage today in the Song of Solomon chapter 3, I do want to give a bit of backstory on the book itself. First, it is primarily a book of poetry, but it is also very rich with sensuality and passion. In fact, the Jews forbid the reading of this book until a man was 30 years of age. I guess they didn't want to stir up passions in a young man that he was not yet ready to be, have addressed. 
On the other hand, this book was highly respected by the Hebrews, with them even singing portions of it on the eighth day of Passover. So the Song of Solomon is incredibly important to them. I want to take a look at this passage today. Again, we're in Song of Solomon chapter 3, and I'll begin simply by reading the first five verses to you. All night long on my bed, I looked for the one my heart loves. I looked for him, but did not find him. I will get up now and go about the city through its streets and squares. I will search for the one my heart loves. So I looked for him, but did not find him. The watchmen found me as they made their rounds in the city. Have you seen the one my heart loves? Scarcely had I passed them when I found the one my heart loves. I held him and would not let him go till I had brought him to my mother's house to the room of the one who conceived me. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field. Do not arouse or awaken love until it is so until it so desires this is a dream of a shulamite woman who is looking with anticipation for a marriage relationship with the one whom her heart loves you heard that phrase four times within that passage she begins with the image of one who just can't stop thinking about her man all night long on my bed, she says, I looked for the one my heart loves. It's similar to the words of the psalmist in Psalm 63, verse 6, where he said, On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Now, it will be revealed later in our passage that the one whom she is referring to, the one her heart loves, is Solomon. If you know anything about Solomon, you probably already know that there were likely many women who apparently felt this way about him. He was quite the stud, as a matter of fact. We know that by the end of his life, he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. So in spite of the fact that many of these marriages were probably more political in nature, uniting two nations together through marriage, it is also likely that there were many who truly longed for him and who he was. However, it is assumed that this love song, this dream that perhaps occurred over multiple nights, that it takes place very early in his reign, long before he is surrounded by 700 wives and 300 concubines. In fact, I heard one person suggest that perhaps she is the first of his many brides. What an intense longing we see within her dream. She wants so much to be with him. In the verses that follow, we see this young woman's dream actually come true. Listen to it beginning in verse 6. Who is this coming up from the wilderness like a column of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and incense made from all the spices of the merchant? Look, it is Solomon's carriage, escorted by 60 warriors, the noblest of Israel, all of them wearing the sword, all experienced in battle, each with his sword at his side, prepared for the terrors of the night. King Solomon 
made for himself the carriage. He made it of wood from Lebanon. Its posts he made of silver, its base of gold. Its seat was upholstered with purple, its interior inlaid with love. Daughters from Jerusalem, come out. Look, you daughters of Zion, look on King Solomon wearing a crown, the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, the day his heart rejoiced. In this story, we see three themes that can be applied in three different ways, and it is so important for us to catch these three things. I want to focus on the themes to begin with today. The first thing that we see is this lover comes with power. He is rising up from the wilderness. Smoke is rising to announce his arrival. Everyone sees his coming and they are in awe of him. The king never approached without drawing attention. Why? Part of it's because of the power which he wielded. But he also comes bringing protection. The passage says that he is escorted by 60 warriors, each wearing a sword and experienced in battle, prepared for the terrors of the night. What wife does not want to know that her husband can protect her? What a beautiful image here. The husband, the groom coming, ready to protect his bride. And finally, we see that the bridegroom also brings with him provision. The carriage in which he rides comes with expensive wood from Lebanon, with silver posts and a gold base. And then you see a bit of the sensitive side of the bridegroom as it states that the seats are upholstered with purple and the interior inlaid with love. That is so romantic, isn't it? It is inlaid with love. Apparently Solomon had a sensitive side to him as well. So you've got these three themes, power, protection, and provision. But I also want to take a look at the application because this is more than just a story. It can be applied in three different ways today. First, some have perceived this passage as being solely about an actual relationship between Solomon and a soon-to-be bride. And so I, I want to cover that first. Within this beautiful story, we see both a powerful love and a beautiful marriage. First look. Let's talk about the powerful love on behalf of this young lady. How many of you have ever had random dreams that didn't really mean anything? They just happen and you don't really think much about it. In fact, typically we forget what they were about 10 minutes after we have awakened. Did you know that this, where we are today, this is the first culture to ever believe that dreams were nothing more than random. And that sounds crazy because that's the way we look at dreams, but it's true. That's why Joseph had dreams and he immediately recognized that it was the foretelling of what God was going to do later in his life. Later, it would be Pharaoh who had a dream and he longed for its meaning. Then King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream and only Daniel was able to give him the correct interpretation of that dream. Dreams meant something. 
Even those outside of the body of Christ have often associated dreams with real life. Sigmund Freud, who is not a believer, by the way, said that in your dreams, you're telling yourself something while you're sleeping that you have been ignoring while you were awake. In a culture where dreams were definitely perceived to mean something, this dream that this lady is having, it shows how much her beloved means to her. This was important. In many ways, this is a nightmare. At least it begins this way. It is revealing her greatest fear. She fears losing her beloved, being unable to find him, although she seems to look everywhere. She apparently has a very deep love for the one whom my heart loves. And she is then overwhelmed with joy upon finding him and embracing him. But I also want you to see the beautiful marriage element that is here. I told you earlier that the Bible begins and ends with marriage and that everywhere in between we see marriage. It is ordained by God. And although there are those like the Apostle Paul who would choose to remain single, marriage is one of the most beautiful things that God has given to mankind. I would also add that marriage is not something that is unique to our culture. Instead, every culture that has ever existed had some sort of marriage covenant. It didn't always look the same. They didn't use the same vows, but there was always some type of marriage covenant. In fact, it used to be that marriage was the foundation of adulthood, and I'm talking about here in the United States. You weren't grown up. You couldn't sit at the adult table until you brought home a spouse. In fact, sometimes the younger sibling got to move to the adult table because they got married, and then the older one who was still single still had to sit with the kids, and it seemed unfair. You got married, and then you worked toward establishing a home that was blessed and successful. But somewhere along the way, our mindset changed toward marriage. Now we do all kinds of other things first. We want to go out and get a good job. We want to establish our career. We want to go and buy a house, get an education, have all kinds of other adventures, a bunch of other stuff. And only after we've done all these things, then we want to get married. That's why the average age of an individual when they got married in 1950 was 22 years of age. It was 24 for the men and 20 for the women. Yet today, the average age of a couple getting married is 30.6 years of age. And since we're here, <laughs> this is the part that no pastor wants to talk on the Song of Solomon on any Sunday, much less on Valentine's Day. But while we're here, I do want to take a moment and I want to address what marriage truly is. And I want to caution those who are not yet in a marriage relationship. First, marriage is literally us moving from me to we. The goal of the marriage is biblically being oneness. Y'all know that the book of Ephesians calls husbands to love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He is calling the husband to sacrifice himself 
for her well-being so that his bride can be better off. And in both Ephesians and Colossians, we see a call to submission. If you just looked at the Ephesian passage, it looks like it's just the wife who is to submit. The Colossian passage might give you a little different perspective as it instructs husbands and wives to submit to one another in love. The idea here is that marriage is not about me, but it is about we. It's not just about making my life better. It is about looking after the needs of my family. So husbands and wives, know what you've gotten yourself into. It is not about me anymore. It is about we. And we need to constantly be reminded of that. But marriage is about more than just the me to we thing. I will also add that marriage is only to be between a man and a woman. I know that the culture around us may see this differently, but the word of God is absolutely clear on this. I just shared from the New Testament passage from Ephesians that addressed the responsibility between men and women. I would suggest that the Old Testament is even more clear. Men and women were created for one another. And a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. And anytime homosexual behavior is addressed in the scripture, it is always portrayed as sin or an abomination. But I suggest that homosexuality is not the only perversion to sexuality or marriage. I heard someone say this week that sex outside of marriage is a lie. Because you say something with your body that you haven't said with your life. It's a pretty profound statement, and I believe it to be true. That can include premarital sex just as much as extramarital relationships. Listen to me. Sex is a beautiful gift from God. But it is solely intended to be between a husband and a wife. Anything less than that is a perversion of God's beautiful gift. And maybe it's time as a church we'd be reminded of that. Now, I told you that there are other applications to this passage today. We've got this where you've got a woman who longs to be with her groom. But I suggest there might be more to it. There are those who doubt whether this was a real relationship that is being described at all, but perhaps this is intended to be nothing more than allegorical. I would just say that I'm not in that category. I do think that there probably was an actual relationship, but I do believe that there is a parallel that is important to us. There is a figurative message that we need to catch within this passage. Some have suggested that the love story found in the Song of Solomon, chapter 3, runs parallel to the love story between God and his people. I told you earlier that marriage began in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. But did you also know that a type of marriage celebration is repeated many times throughout the Old Testament? Well, they weren't always a husband and wife. Actually, the story is often between God and his people. In fact, on one occasion, we are introduced to one of the prophets named Hosea. 
His story is a little bit difficult to wrap our minds around, but it certainly drives the point home very well. He is called to take an adulterous woman named Gomer to be his wife. He loves her and he takes care of her, but she continually longs for something else. And so she will repeatedly demonstrate an unfaithfulness that must have been heartbreaking to Hosea. As much as he loved her, it was never enough to make her remain faithful to him. But each time she would become unfaithful, God would instruct Hosea to go and buy her back. Within this flawed relationship, we see God's love relationship with the people of Israel. He loves his people and he longs to be in a covenant with them. Yet no matter how much he loves them, it seems that they keep going back to the same sins that had plagued them in the past. And he doesn't stop loving them. Instead, he keeps chasing after them to bring them back. You see, our relationship with God is often very much like a marriage. In fact, consider the fact that every time the people of Israel would end up in some type of sin, there would come a time when they would need to sort of hit the reset button. After the Israelites had been set free from bondage in Egypt, they came to Mount Sinai and they renewed their covenant with God. Then the same thing would happen with the Israelites when they entered the promised land and they would renew their covenant with God. And when they allowed sin to fall into the camp of Israel, they would once again renew their covenant with God. And in 2 Kings 22, when King Josiah ordered that the temple be restored and they found the temple scroll which had been lost and it described God's goodness to God's people and his expectations upon them, they once again renewed their covenant with God. This is a repeated practice throughout Jewish history. I want you to notice that each time that they renew their covenant, there is an expectation that both parties will be fully devoted to this covenant. In fact, that's the very nature of a covenant. In a contract, both parties are typically expected to share responsibility at 50-50. You do your part, I'll do my part. But when we say a covenant, we're not looking for 50-50 anymore. We're looking at 100% and 100%. Both parties are giving everything of themselves to make this a reality. That is what God desires for his people. He's already said, I will give 100% of me to make sure that this relationship is what it ought to be. And he says, I want the same thing from you. So the fact is that God always longed for a marriage type relationship with his people. But I want to take it a step further today. In this passage, we see imagery that is easy to overlook but it carries important meaning. For example, back in verse six, this is what it said one more time. Who is this coming up from the wilderness like a column of smoke 
perfumed with myrrh and incense made from all the spices of the merchant. Perhaps this is much more than just a reference to Solomon and his bride. Maybe it's even more of a reference to God and the people of Israel. Maybe, maybe this is an allusion to Christ and the church. So there is the element, I do believe, between a man and a woman that is being addressed here. And there is the Old Testament issue between God and the people of Israel. But maybe this illustration is about Christ and his church. We live in a dark and crazy world that so often feels like we are in the wilderness And in the midst of all the craziness, we long, or at least we ought to long, for our bridegroom to come and deliver us. The description of the bridegroom is filled with imagery that means something. In Old Testament literature, the presence of smoke always represented the presence of God, the Spirit of God, His leadership, and His involvement. For example, we see the smoke filling the temple or the synagogue. And as the Israelites wandered through the desert, they followed a pillar of fire at night and a cloud by day, likely a cloud of smoke. And then you have the myrrh and the incense. We don't use a lot of myrrh in today's culture, but it was something that was used for special purposes in Jesus' day. For example, Consider the two primary purposes of the use of myrrh. First, it was used to consecrate priests, the temple, or even kings. It was an anointing oil. The only other time that it was typically used was for embalming or the anointing of a body for burial. I want you to consider that imagery for a moment. There is coming a day when our bridegroom, Christ himself, will return for the great wedding banquet. And in that moment, we will see the Lord face to face. This bridegroom that we await will come having been anointed as prophet, priest, and king. But more than that, he will bear the perfume of death knowing that he has overcome death already. Do you think this is all random, that it shows up here in this story, that he comes with a pillar of fire, smoke, that here he comes with the smell of myrrh and incense? And what is described throughout the New Testament as Jesus gives multiple glimpses of what it will be like when the Son of Man comes. One such image will portray Ten virgins who are waiting for their bridegroom to come. And in Revelation 22, we see the incredible anticipation as they await his arrival. Listen to the image that is described. I'll just share a few verses with you, beginning in verse 6. We read, The angel said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God who inspires the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Listen, look, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written in this scroll. And then skipping down to verse 12, we read, look, I am coming soon. 
My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And then in verse 17, we read, The Spirit of the Bride and the Bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come. Let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who wishes to take the free gift of the water of life come. Finally, in verse 20, We read, he who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. So yes, this passage does give us a glimpse of what marriage is supposed to be about. You have a bride who passionately loves her husband or her fiancé. You have a groom who is determined to take care of his bride, and it probably does connect also with the relationship between God and the Jewish people. But this passage also gives us a kind of glimpse at the type of relationship Jesus desires between us. Can you imagine Loving God with such a passion, similar to the way you loved your bride-to-be. You remember what it was like? And you were so eager to be together. You had this hunger to be with her or him. And you wanted so much for that intimacy to take place. You were looking with anticipation for what was to come. Can you imagine looking at God with that same heart, that same passion that says, I just want to be with him? Can you imagine the excitement that would fill you if your groom had been gone on a long journey and he was scheduled for a sudden return? Earlier this year, Michael and I got to attend a Clemson football game where a soldier was able to surprise his family. And suddenly, you see on the big screen, they focused in on this guy, this husband. He's still in uniform in his fatigues. And suddenly, you see him running across the field toward his family. And his wife and kids are looking up at the screen, and they see their dad. And then you see them, and they're looking to find out where is he. And they see him running, and they take off running. And it was kind of like one of those chariots of fire scenes where you almost see it in slow motion, and they're coming together. And it was perhaps the highlight of that day. Well, there is coming a day when we, too, will be reunited with our beloved. And it will be a beautiful thing. How incredible will that wedding feast be for us? We, we won't be merely guests at the wedding. It's fun going to weddings. I love participating in weddings. I love watching the bride and groom. We will not be guests at the wedding. We will be the bride. Are you ready for that day to come? I don't know when the Lord will choose for that day to come, but I know that you can prepare for it now.
How do you do that? You begin by simply asking Jesus to forgive you of your sins. And then you begin to develop that relationship with him. So that when that day comes, you're not meeting as strangers, but rather you have loved him for so long already. You develop that relationship with him. If that is what you long for today, in a moment, I'm going to ask you to pray with me. Now, I know I'm dealing with the church. I'm dealing with people. Y'all have heard salvation messages for years. And honestly, this isn't even a great salvation message. But this is about the incredible love that God has for you. Maybe what needs to happen in the body of Christ is we need to be reminded that this truly is about a love relationship with him. We've gotten caught up in the religion side of church. We do things because that's what we're supposed to do. We do things because we're going to get in trouble if we don't do it. We do things because other people are watching. Maybe what needs to happen is for us to once again refocus on the relationship that Jesus Christ longs for with us. And you see this love between the two? You've got a bride who she is having nightmares because she's afraid she can't connect with this groom. And then all of a sudden that nightmare turns into an incredible dream where there she is embracing her groom. Because she longs so much to be with him and she takes him to show him off to her mom. Do, do you recognize that that's the kind of love relationship God longs for with you? I believe today that God desires us to be made right with him. Some of that's going to require, you know, we're talking about revival. Maybe some of the people who are in church need to reach that point of full surrender once more. Maybe we need to once again come before the Lord, much like David did last week. Say, Lord, cleanse me from my unrighteousness. Forgive me. Cast not your Holy Spirit from me. If you would bow your heads with me. Father, we come before you today very much aware of the sin that has been present within our lives. We come with our sinful past and we know that you are our only hope for forgiveness and life. You are the only way to prepare for that great wedding banquet. And we do look forward to that day because we believe that there will come a day where all the struggles of this life will be in the past. It will no longer be a burden to us, but rather we will be in the presence of an almighty God. Lord, I pray that every person in this room, that we would be ready today. We don't know when you're going to come back. It may be another thousand years. It may be another hundred years, or it could be today. Father, I pray that every person in this room would ready our hearts that we would have that right relationship with you, where we would long for you more than anything else, knowing that you also long for us more than anything else. Father, I pray today that you would forgive us of whatever sins have enslaved us. And right now, I pray that you would pour out your spirit on us, that we might be new and we might be whole. 
Father, I pray that today you would fill us and start a great work in us. We, we talked about the fact that you are moving in other places, but I pray that you would move right here, right now, in us. Give us a hunger for you. Give us a devotion for you, 100% giving everything to you. And Lord, I pray that as you do, Lord, that this place would be changed. Have your way in us now, in Jesus' name, amen. Colby. This morning we have the privilege and opportunity to partake in communion together. And I have the utmost privilege of being able to lead us in communion this morning. And there's no place I would rather be uh, to be able to do this for my very first time. And uh, there's no group of people uh, that I would rather do it with uh, than with you guys. And so I am very grateful for this opportunity that Mike uh, has given me this morning. And uh, just a couple of things before we uh, come up to receive the elements. And actually during this time, those who are serving communion can come up at this time and um, start preparing for uh, others to come up as well. And I'm going to share uh, a few things for us this morning. And all revolves around a table, some bread, some wine, 12 disciples, and one Jesus. I've been to many churches and celebrated communion in many different ways. But one thing they have almost all had in common was a table. We have a table right here. They come in many different sizes and styles, some simple and some fancy, some decorative and some just plain. But there is almost always a table. And you might wonder what is the significance of a table and, how, and, and the weight that it carries the bread and the cup that it holds. It is significant because a table is a place where we gather. And oftentimes we share a meal around a table. A table is not absolutely necessary for communion. It's not. But it is a good reminder for us to remember that communion first took place around a table. And in particular a dinner table. And that's why the Bible calls communion both the Lord's Supper and the Lord's Table. So as we're coming together to the Lord's Table to gather, we remember a couple things. First and foremost, we remember Jesus. When Jesus sat around the table with his disciples and gave them bread and the cup, twice he told them, do this in remembrance of me. Short and simple. To the point, as Jesus oftentimes is. When we take communion, we think of Jesus. He is our focus. He is our reason for being here. We remember him. And in particular, we remember his sufferings. As we take the bread we, that has been broken, we should remember Jesus' sufferings, right? But we should especially remember his physical sufferings in the body. We should remember his agony in, of prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. We should remember his unlawful arrest in the middle of the night. We should remember his unfair trial and the false accusations brought against him. We should remember Jesus' betrayal, 
Peter's denial and his disciples abandoning him at his greatest hour of human need. We remember his sufferings. We should remember the brutal treatment he received at the hands of the soldiers. We should remember the mocking, the blindfolding, and the spitting, the beating with the fists, the slap in the face, and the crown of thorns that was pushed into his skull. We should remember the whipping and the scourging by the Roman guards, the carrying of the cross, and the nailing of the hands and feet. We remember his death upon that cross. The pouring out of blood in scripture is always a symbol of violent death. And so the cup is a reminder not only that Jesus died, but that he was killed. Jesus did not die of old age or accident of, or of illness. He was executed for a crime that he did not commit. He was killed in one of the most brutal and painful methods known to man. He experienced nerve damage from the nails. He experienced hunger and thirst, exhaustion, and eventually slow suffocation upon the cross. This is a cup. The cup is a reminder of all of this. As we take the cup, we should remember Jesus' death upon the cross. And then lastly, we remember the why. Why he did it. He did it for us. Each and every single one of us. He did it for our sins. The Gospel of Matthew records Jesus' words in this way as he gave his disciples the cup. This is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus did not go unwillingly to the cross. He did not die a martyr's death. He went to the cross for a purpose. He went there to die in our place so that our sins might be forgiven. This is why we pause before taking communion, to examine, to dig deep and examine our lives, and to confess, to confess before the Lord our wrongs doing, our sins, how we've messed up and where we went wrong. We remember why Jesus suffered and died, so that we might be forgiven for our sins. So just a couple moments, we're all going to come up together. We're going to uh, receive the elements, and then uh, you're going to go back to your seat. And during that time, as you're waiting for everybody to come through the line and get their, receive their elements as well, this is a time for you to pause, to stop, to examine, to confess. And whenever I see that everyone has received their elements and has gotten back to their seats, I will then read a portion of Scripture for you. And during that portion of scripture, we will partake of the elements together. And after that, at the end, I will pray, and I will dismiss everyone. So the way we're going to do this this morning is we have different stations here. You're going to exit out to the right side of your pew, and then, of course, enter back into the left side. And you just go to the section of that is closest to you. So we come not because we must but because we may. And not because we are strong, but because we are weak.
Then came the day of the unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb was to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare it, they asked. He replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of that house, the teacher asked, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Go and make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat the Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from it, from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And so he took the bread, he gave thanks and broke it. Gave it them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let us pray. Gracious Father, we praise and thank you for your love shown to us in Christ Jesus. We thank you for his life and ministry, announcing the good news of your kingdom and demonstrating its power. And the, and the lifting of the downtrodden and the healing of the sick and the loving of the loveless. We thank you for his sacrificial death upon the cross, for your redemption of the world, and for your raising him to life again. And as a foretaste of the glory we shall share, we give you thanks for the bread and the wine symbols of our world and signs of your transforming love. We ask that you send your Holy Spirit. We pray that we might be renewed into the likeness of Christ Jesus and formed into his body. In all of this, we ask and we pray in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It's such a privilege to have you this morning. Thank you for being here, and it's such a privilege to be able to lead you in communion and, and partake in the elements with you. Go in the grace and peace of Christ, and we will see you next Sunday.